Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Paws podcast. I'm your host Stu and together we're going to climb the mountain to create useful functional performance with enthusiasm, effort and execution. Today's episode is the training overview. This is season one episode 17 and this is going to answer some questions from the Barefoot Paws discussion group on Facebook. The questions were what do you do when you have a stubborn dog? How do you choose the right trainer? And does training ever stop? All of these questions that um, we just kind of outlined, they all have similar roots to them. Um, Dog training in itself is largely an undervalued service. Uh, We live in a time where there are more dogs than ever before. They are more accessible. They are more disposable. We are continually frustrated by them because we have far busier lives, i.e. we call ourselves a very time poor generation. So we have a bunch of things that are kind of adding up to, well, my dog's not doing what I want. Where's the magic pill? And the issue is there is no five minute fix. There is no wonder miracle cure for dogs not doing the things that we want to the way we want to. So it's important that we have an understanding that the a, a good quality trainer has at least one training paradigm that they're using to be able to sort the issues out that you have, whatever they may be. If that skill set is not owned by the trainer in question, then they should have a referral network to say, hey, look, this particular issue, whatever it may be, is not in my basket, but these are the people that I refer that work out to. They are specialists. So that's the first thing to look for is um, going to someone who who can't say no to anything or more likely doesn't say no to anything for whatever problem. There are, however, a, a, a rather large body of professionals that will seek to work on relieving the symptoms. Now, if I've just had my arm ripped off, I'm not going to put a band-aid over the wound. If I've just broken my leg, I'm not going to shove some dirt into it. If I've poked something into my eye, I'm not putting glasses on to help me see better. I'm going to need to get some some sort of treatment beyond the superficial symptoms. If I've got a headache and it's ongoing, do you know what? Maybe for whatever reason, I am, I've stopped drinking coffee and now I've got an issue and I know that my body is going to normalize. Or maybe I've got a migraine that's been going for weeks and weeks and I need to go see my doctor. There are different types of symptoms that we have that are presented and we need to go to different solution providers in the right timing to be able to get a decent outcome. If we don't address the root cause of the problems at hand, then we tend to we tend to either have to take an extremely long time to give the dog some sort of modicum of success, which is then more frustrating for you because it means you have a lot more homework to do, or you've got to put more 
you, you have to invest more money into it. On the other hand, we start to put more pressure on our dogs. And that means that the outcome is that, well, we risk just having an apologetic looking dog toy in the corner of the room. So if we're not addressing the root causes of the behavior, then I'm always going to be pushing it uphill because maybe my dog walks fine at the end of the lead until something goes wrong and then they misbehave. Maybe my dog is fine until I get to the beach and then they misbehave. Maybe my dog is fine until I'm sitting down enjoying my coffee at the life-saving club and then they misbehave. Maybe my dog is fine at home, but as soon as I leave, they misbehave. Maybe my dog is fine at whatever place I go to to train my dog, but anywhere else, my dog misbehaves. There are all sorts of reasons as to why a dog will misbehave, it is generally not to cause you frustration. So for example, the most common issue that I tend to find is that the subject dog is overexcited. That means that they are in a constant state of overwhelm. And the thing that I tend to to advise clients with such dogs is imagine waking up after having, like as soon as you wake up, you down five coffees as quickly as you can. And every time something happens, you drink another coffee. And by the end of the day, you're a wreck. You can't sit still. You can't think straight. You can't even keep your eyes still in, in their sockets. You Your heart rate is all over the place. Your breathing is all over the shop. There's no chance of relaxation. And then when you go and lie in bed, you're still buzzing from the entire day. Maybe you go to bed at 10 o'clock at night, but by four o'clock in the morning, you're tired enough to actually crash out. In two hours time, you're back up and at it and you repeat the cycle all over again. So you're in a constant state of toxic overwhelm. And essentially, we've got to start getting some decaf into you because we're not going to be able to get anything done unless I'm going to take an extraordinary amount of time or I'm going to put an extraordinary amount of pressure on the dog in question. Because unless I do either of those two things, nothing's going to happen. If I want to teach a dog to walk next to me rather than pulling, look, anybody can teach a dog to stop doing something, anything. That's pretty low-hanging fruit. On the opposite end of the chain, I can use absolutely no pressure and simply stand still and wait for the dog and then pay them and then keep moving. That is an extremely frustrating paradigm to work in on either end of the spectrum. One, again, one is just gonna cause you a huge amount of frustration and is gonna cause the same for your dog. And the other end of the spectrum uh, is probably gonna make you feel like all you ever do is smash your dog and your dog feels the same thing. So what we really want to do for a dog that is constantly jumping up on people, constantly pulling out, pulling on the lead and choking themselves out, uh, will never ever recall, can't, can't keep their mouth shut when they go into the backyard. All of these sorts of things that our dogs may do tend to stem from misplaced excitement or in the worst case, just overexcitement on a continued basis. So what we actually want to do is take our dog away from that overwhelm by reducing not the availability of excitement per se, but more so the amount of excitement created from that arousal. So if we reduce the excitement, 
we're reducing the overwhelm. If we reduce the overwhelm, we have a better dog all around. So if we are, when we are able to get past that reactive state in our dog and start to actually communicate with the more evolved part of our dog's brain, that's where real dog training is at. That's where the psychology is, the science. That's where all of the good stuff is at. That's where you really get the dog that you know and love. They're in that part of the brain, not in the overwhelmed part of the brain. The more overwhelmed the dogs become, the less individual they become. They become more like their breed. They become more like, ultimately, a dog. And by that stage, things are hectic. So what we want to do is we want to reduce that overwhelm. We want to destroy that overexcitement so that our dogs can still get stoked, but they're not hypervigilant. They're not anxious. They're not overexcited at the drop of a hat. And what that allows us to do then, it allows us to be far more strategic with the use of, of pressures. It allows us to be far, far more subtle in how we use frustration and our frustration that we tend to induce tends to lead our dogs towards being motivated into the things we want when we want them and then to reject the things that we want them to reject. Whereas when we have that overexcited state, it's it's all over the shop. It's fast, it's frenetic, it makes for great TV and it makes for poor dog training. So the more polarized we get, I think we've spoken about this in an episode prior, the more aversive pressure, the more nasty pressure I put onto my dog, i.e. The, the more I am smashing a dog into submission, right? then the more flattened out the dog becomes. Basically, the dog just lies there and doesn't want to have a heartbeat in case they get smashed for that. So the dog themselves becomes avoidant of situations. They become behaviorally inflexible because if they do something, anything, they might get smashed for that. So they don't tend to do anything. They, they might just lie at your feet and you're like, oh, that's nice, they're giving me some affection. Whereas the real motivation is to avoid any repercussions from you for they don't know what. On the flip side of that, we have only using reinforcement, only using in particular positive reinforcement. Once we have this, this polarized paradigm, then I can only pay the dog for doing the thing I want. It, it doesn't make sense scientifically, psychologically, or in in practice. Because, because if I am waiting for the dog to do the right thing, then in that particular paradigm, I believe that I need to erode away anything else that is happening, and that can't happen if I'm only ever using one particular tool in my toolbox. I can't use a hammer where I need a drill. They, they're, they're tools for completely different things, okay? So if I'm using only reinforcement, only positive reinforcement, means I'm only giving nice consequences, then what, I, the, what I'm going to ultimately create is a hypervigilant dog because they're looking at the world as where is the next opportunity for getting that nice consequence? And the issue there is, particularly in the pet market, is that 
the companion dog is able to give themselves plenty of nice consequences. Uh, and then we come along and we pay on top of that. But the issue there is that we have two extremes and I'm not talking about I'm not talking about real training, I'm talking about the extremes, right? The zealots. So um, and there's plenty of them around. I'm not going to give them any traffic. But there are there are plenty of extremely polarized ideologues out there that push their particular thing. And the product that they put out is either a super flat dog that doesn't want to do anything in fear of retribution. And on the other side is a super crumbly dog, a very weak dog with super weak nerves that cannot deal with frustration. Right? But yet they're, they're hypervigilant to everything. Yeah, so when they don't get what they want, they're on the ground having a tantrum. Either of these extremes are simply not ethical. Right? It, neither is it humane. To put a dog through that much frustration, that much pressure, um, to take away all of that clarity, to take away the joy of life, to take away their God-given right to be able to make decisions, to take away all of these things, I think is it, it, it simply doesn't make sense. Right? No one gets into this business with the idea of smashing dogs. But some people, they end up believing their own Kool-Aid and they get on their own bandwagon and they have success as far as their clients can tell. But speaking from a professional to a professional, that shouldn't be our benchmark. Because if we set our benchmark to be in the basement and we aim to stay there, we can get a massive body of work, but we will never ever rise to be able to provide a solid solid amount of training to a broad bandwidth of dogs, and therefore we are only able to serve a very narrow bandwidth of dogs and a very narrow bandwidth of people. And we're a service industry, that means that we cannot service the, enough people in the way that they need to be served. Again, it's, it's it's not humane to cause more muddied water when we leave than when we when we turned up. So what I mean to say by that is when we turn up and we say, oh, yeah, so your dog's dumping up on people. Yeah, just smash them around a bit whenever they do that, and then they'll be fine. And then the dog... Okay, when, when the train is there, don't jump up on people. And then somebody else comes over, they jump up on someone, and then the, then you will come along and you will try your best to smash your dog the way that the trainer did, but you don't. You have neither the timing, you have neither the skills, you have neither the nuanced understanding as to what you're looking for. So your dog doesn't necessarily understand the same thing as when that professional turned up and taught you how to do it. So... A professional, sh things should look quite easy when a professional does it. The professional should be able to squeeze out potential from your dog that you, as yet, cannot. That happens in time. But a one and done, it's just not humane for your dog because the, the frustration caused leads them to reject the lesson and, in worst case, motivates them back into the problem behavior. And then there's more frustration for you guys. And that's where I tend to see um, dogs getting rehomed, dogs getting dumped, dogs getting um, behavioral euthanasia, all sorts of things. The more polarized training methods, I, I don't believe that they truly last. 
Because on the one side, we're trying to pay for all of the things that we want, and yet we ignore the things that are self-paying. On the other side, we are smashing out the joy of life. So we're not really teaching any particular skills, but just teaching our dog that even now, avoid that. Even now, avoid this. Even now, avoid that. Um, the, the more extremes that they don't tend to be as strategic, yeah, because it tends, the more extreme you get, the less flexible you become. The less flexible you are, the more inclined you are to use a nuke for every single dog that you come across. So there's no strategy, it's just bomb the daylights out of the dog. So the more into the middle of the realm that we get, the middle of that spectrum, the more strategic we become. And the end product itself, i.e. what does your dog look like? after that training what is the what is the trainer offering to you when you turn up to a car dealership and you look in the market for a new car you're always looking for something different depending on what season of life you're in yeah when you're when you're just starting to earn money you're tending to look for something that's flashy something that shows that i don't know you're a lot of fun there's some excitement there so you tend to get like a a big 4B or a fast car or something fancy right something that you can show off with and then as you kind of grow through the seasons you suddenly you end up with a 7 seater and then as you move on through life suddenly you end up with a hybrid or you end up with an electric vehicle or you end up with a smart car Next thing you know, you've you've got a car that is super safe. You're driving a Volvo around. So depending on the type of season that you're in, depends on the type of car that you're going to want to have at that moment in time. So if I'm in my early 20s and I'm going out to buy myself a brand new car, then I'm looking for something fast. It's fun. It's a bit of show off. There's a bit of there's a bit of cool stuff to it. I'm not looking for a smart car, you know, two two seater, one cylinder engine that I need in the city. I want something that I can fang around a little bit and show off and have some fun with my friends. So I'm not going to go to certain places because I want something particular. And in the service industry, it's it's not really that much different. Because if I want my dog to do what I want when I want it, I can't go to low-hanging fruit because they're not going to give me the service that I want. They're going to give me something. I'm going to get an end result, but not necessarily what I want. And that's where you have to kind of clue in to what is it that your prospective trainer is saying. Like I just said in at the beginning, or in the introduction, I said that we're going to be climbing the mountain to create useful, functional performance with enthusiasm, effort, and execution. What does that mean? That means that what we're going to be teaching your dog is going to be useful for you. It is going to be functional for your lifestyle. And there's going to be some real performance to it, i.e. your dog can do it under some pretty heavy distractions. And not only are they going to do it, they're going to do that with enthusiasm because, hey, you do this. Yes, man, I'm going to do that right now. They're going to do it with effort. They're going to leave something like a recall. I'm going to leave playing with these dogs to come flying back over to you. We're going to do it with execution. The dog is going to do whatever it takes to come flying back to you. They're going to move around those people. They're going to go through that that lagoon. They're going to do whatever it is to come back to you and make sure that you understand that they did the job right. Whereas what some other people will say is like, they're not interested in that stuff. I just want my dog to come back to me. Okay, how? How does it look for you? How does it look for your dog to just come back to you? Because what that tells me is that you don't, 
you don't value what your dog has to go through to come back. And how should you, right? You're coming to me to, or, or someone like me to, to get the job done for you. And you, you don't know where to start. So you're looking for a trainer. But if, if the trainer that you're speaking to cannot provide you with an overarching, hey, look, this is the outcome of what your dog is going to be able to do. This, this is our goal. Right? And then part of it is up to you, part of it is up to your dog, and part of it is up to the trainer. But the ultimate thing is the trainer has to be able to give you an idea of what it is that they're selling to you. What is it that you are looking for and can they match those criteria? You're well within your rights to be able to ask those questions. An inexperienced trainer will probably just say yes or be overwhelmed and say no. A wise trainer will read between the lines and figure it out what it is that you really want and need and feed that back to you. All right, so because what they are looking for, a wise and experienced trainer, they, they know what it is that they like to see in a dog. And they will do their utmost to get that to you because you've gone to them because you like the fact that they are providing you with a Ferrari. They, you, they are providing you with whatever it is that you are looking for in your season. So you might be going out and doing the whole Grey Nomad thing, right? Totally cool. You want to do the big lap. So now you need a dog who is able to stay tethered for some time in isolation from you. They've got to be able to be in a crate. They've got to be able to stay for extended periods in a car. They've got to be able to be trusted off lead. They've got to be pretty proof on all sorts of wildlife and social situations. So there's a specific topography of skill sets that your dog is going to need. You might have a hearing dog they need to be able to provide certain things for you. They've got to be able to tell you when the phone's going off, when, they, when the kettle's boiling, when the ticker goes off, when there's someone at the door. There's a specific behavioral topography that that trainer needs to be able to provide for you. But both of those situations, the skill sets are different, but also what the trainer is going to be able to provide to you is going to be different. Some are going to be quite precise with some higher energy. You've got to look out for on one side that the dog is livable, Right, so there are there are plenty of trainers around who will be able to teach your dog to do pretty much anything you want with some pretty high fire in their belly. And you've got to be able to ask, well, can I live with that dog by the time that they're trained? Or do I have to train my dog for every single situation? Because there's a difference between controlling my dog all the time and being able to control my dog when I need to and allowing them to live at, live at liberty because I've taught them what liberty looks like. Yeah. But the more I come away from that paradigm and the further I push the training out to the extremes, I end up with a lame and an unstable dog, right? And that's like going to a car yard and buying the cheapest bomb of a car you can possibly find. It's a car, it works, but for how long and how much is it gonna cost you in the long run? In general, there, there's a particular common way that training is done, okay? And that would, 
most good trainers follow that same sort of uh, sequence of phases. And I've broken that, that down into uh, six particular steps. And I'm just going to roughly go over them. And I'm going to start with the beginning, finish with the end, and then we're going to go through them in some detail. So everything that we do sits on the shoulders of our acquisition phase. Our acquisition phase is where our dogs acquire the concepts of the markers that we want to teach them. Okay, so I'm, I train using a lot of markers where I want them so that I, I can A, give my dog the best opportunity to get on board with my lifestyle or, or with your lifestyle. On the flip side though, we also have when I need to pile on some constraint and I want to teach the dog some skills, then I need to have that acquisition so that my dog understands what it is that they're working for. So we've talked about markers in a previous episode. If you're not too sure about those, I would refer you back to the marker episode. But it is important that we understand that the acquisition, if we skim through that, then the shoulders that all of our skills rely upon are overburdened and will crumble. So that means then that the skills that I need will never be good enough to stand up A, to the test of time and B, to, to the real world. Unless I put the time and effort into the acquisition phase. Now the way I do it, the acquisition phase will take around about a week. The more extreme the dog, so the more aggressive or the more defensive or subdued or whatever, the, the more issues that we tend to have that are, that are extreme, that acquisition phase can last a little while longer. And honestly, it lasts as long as it lasts. We're always pushing as hard as we can go, but we're always going to go as slow as that dog needs us to be. Because if we don't have solid acquisition phase at completion, then none of the skills that we ever hope to train will ever, ever meet our expectations. And there will always be confusion for our dog. That means that there will always be frustration and that will be not motivating into the behaviors that we want or the responses we want. In fact, they will reject what we want and they will do what their breed says and then they will do what they, what a dog does. And that just becomes more and more savage as time goes on. So we want to have good, solid acquisition phases. Once that acquisition phase is done, then we move on to the teaching phase. So that's where we're kind of showing our dogs more or less what to do. Then we go on to the terming phase. That's where we give that thing a name. Then we give our dogs over to the training phase. That's where that's where the real meat and potatoes of, of getting to specific quality standards. Then we move over to the testing phase. That's where things become a little bit more difficult for our dogs. And then ultimately we move on to the trial phase, which is the phase where we are able to do the skill for X amount of time, for X amount of reps, for whatever it is, whatever end purpose you have in mind, our dog is able to do that skill for that duration of time. And then we factor in the limitations that we've got as well, whatever they may be. We'll talk about that later. So we have, in total, a six-step process to training a dog any one particular skill. And the acquisition phase dictates the success of everything else.
we're going to dive in a little bit more into the acquisition phase. The acquisition phase is uh, the primary outcome for the purposes of training is to ready the dog to be in a state of attention so that they can learn and basically pick up the things that we're putting down. So we need to have access to our dog's brain. We need to have our dog desiring that there is a benefit for them in solving the problems we put before them. Right, so that ultimately there's a bunch of other things that happen in the acquisition phase. There can be uh, all sorts of lifestyle changes that are made so that a dog is not filmed, that we reduce the excitement, that we uh, provide our dogs with a punching bag, with, with a productive outlet for all of their energy, uh, that we provide enrichment for our dogs, that we provide all sorts of um, the polar extremes of rest through to excitement so that our dog's needs are met. And what that allows is that our dog is able to focus, concentrate, and have a good time trying to solve the problems that we set before them. So acquisition in itself is more than only concentrating on markers. It's also about establishing a lifestyle to be able to start to shape a dog to be attentive in the way that you require them. Yeah, so acquisition phase itself it teaches attention so we're building markers so that our dog is literally hunting us for markers when we tell them that that time is now available so that they're willing to um, build their enthusiasm that they can face stresses they can uh, they can overcome problems they can overcome frustration in a way that we want them to overcome frustration through that it also permits effort a lot of dogs will uh, they will tend to crumble and become shaky when a problem is set before them because they haven't had to solve a problem before, not in a productive way. They've simply gone, do you know what, this is too hard, I'll blow you off and then I'll, you'll end up just throwing your arms in the air and you'll leave me alone. Or they'll bark at you and you shriek and then, well, this is too hard, put it in the hard basket, sort it out later. By being able to build a series of markers in such a way that our, our dogs desire to hunt for those markers, to get the validation that they've solved the problem, to get the kick out of earning their ticket, that permits our dogs to put effort into a concentrated avenue so that they can solve the problems that we're presenting them, so that we can we can build on those things. We can start to add distractions. We can start to add uh, all manner of challenges in front of them, and our dogs are able to gain rather than lose. So that effort then, uh, rather than pulling at the lead and snapping and snarling at dogs and bikes and stuff like that, our dogs are now able to build upon that acquisition phase and do the skills that you want them to do in place of do the dog or breed things that they are born to do. So that also enables execution. So execution being the the actual performance of that skill. Right? It's, it's carrying out that skill at whatever level you've trained them. So when our markers are trained to be so intense that our dog automatically leaves what it is they're doing in pursuit of the concept of that marker. So if I say, for example, say, yes, my dog will stop what it is they're doing and they will come over to me looking for my hands, which hand am I gonna put food into and they'll, they'll steal the food out of that hand. When I've got a marker that, that's, that is that strong, then that outweighs the environmental competitors, the rabbits, the foxes, the sheep poo, 
the snakes, those sorts of things. If I've got myself into a position where the acquisition phase allows my dog the freedom to be able to go, I can forsake this thing to get that, as opposed to when I'm only addressing the symptom, it's always a sacrifice. I could eat this poo or I could come to you and, and perhaps get a cookie. So, well, why don't I just do both? That sacrificial aspect, if we keep that, if we only ever address symptoms, oh, my dog won't come and call. Oh, my dog won't walk next to me. Oh, my dog continues to jump on the counter. My dog barks when people are coming close. If I only address those individual symptoms, then everything else remains sacrificial. Do this and sacrifice that. Whereas what I'm talking about is do this, forsake everything else. There is no sacrifice. There is no conflict. That makes things much easier for your dog. And because of that, we're able to dive deeper into the execution. And because our dog is able to build that enthusiasm for the more civil things, they're able to put all of their efforts, which are currently creating problematic behaviors and lifestyle, they can put all of that stuff into the avenue that you want. Through that, we can teach our dogs to do the skills we want to the level that we require. And all of that increases confidence, not just in the dog, but also in the human. Because now we understand, oh, I haven't, I've trained to this level, we're not at that level yet. Or I've trained to that level, why isn't it working? And then we can, we can go up and down the mountain to figure out where is it that the training has gotten shaky. Because generally speaking, dogs only tell us the truth of the training that we have put in. Whether that be separation anxiety, whether that be reactivity, whether that be uh, a competitive or, or hobby uh, pursuit like trick training or whether that be uh, rally or tribe ball or whatever it is. If our dogs tend to be shaky at those things that we want, then usually it's a training thing. Right? So we have to have a look at that. But... So part of the reason, or 50% of the acquisition phase is providing our dogs with a reason to do the thing, okay? Whatever that thing is that we're gonna concentrate on. Our dogs understand that they have an opportunity to get what it is they want out of life by doing this thing, right? It's enriching. On the other side, the flip side is, the other 50% is it fixes our problems. It builds our timing, it builds our attention, it builds our objective state. It erodes our anxious, our frustration. It erodes our anger. It allows us to be far more detached and go, do you know what? I don't have to live in the moment where everything's a volcano. I'm just waiting for which one's going to blow its top. What I can do is I can, I can take advantage of teachable moments or I'm going to go into a session. This is my plan. This is what I'm aiming for. And from that plan, there we can deviate. But I have a starting point and I have an ending point. If it takes half a session to get there, stoked. If it takes three or four sessions to get there, then I'll just make that plan, which was obviously too difficult, and I'll splice that up into individual plans. No problem. But that's a part of the acquisition phase is it teaches us how to best lead our dogs by serving our dogs. Once our dog has a reason to work with and for us, 
Then we can actually start to go into the teaching phase. This is where we're taking, we're building up on the shoulders of the acquisition phase. Everything starts there. And teaching is where we first start to explore behavior beyond the acquisition, beyond getting the markers and the lifestyle down pat. So the teaching phase itself is where we are building. Uh, generally speaking, we are building some gross motor function in, in our dogs. We are we're getting them to perform the physical movements without a huge amount of precision, without a huge amount of refinement. Think of sit. All I want from sit is for my dog to have four paws on the ground and their butt. That's it. That's the general concept of what I want. So think of that as if you're training a, a child to ride a bike. You don't put them on a mountain bike and send them down a hill. What you do is you find a flat piece of concrete, you get a bike with some training wheels on it, and then you support that child through riding the bike. They've got to learn to sit on the saddle. They've got to learn what the pedals do. They've got to learn what the brakes do. They've got to learn what the handlebars do. They've got to learn how to balance the bike on the training wheels. And that then the training wheels can start to come off as we start to do different different figure eights and different corners and, and, and those sorts of things. So it's, it's a gradual process. We have to break these skills down into their component pieces so that we can get our dogs to understand what the intended outcome is. So with that in mind, we've got to appreciate that dogs are incapable of making mistakes during the teaching phase. If the dog stuffs it, that's our issue, not the dog's issue. The dog has absolutely no way of understanding the concept of what you're trying to achieve, whether that be a sit, whether that be a down, whether that be an indication, whether that be a spin, whether that be sitting on your shoulders, whatever it is that you're trying to teach your dog, your dog has zero idea of what the outcome is. They're starting the journey based upon or, or launching off of the shoulders of the acquisition phase. So in our teaching phase, we are using only reinforcement. We are not using punishment because, well, that would be unjust. It would be unfair and that would be not serving our dog. Because if we're using some sort of a nasty consequence to get the message across, we're not going to create the effort and enthusiasm and the, the type of execution that we want from our dogs. We want our dogs to do something and do it now, but we never want the implied or else in our dog because that's when things become avoidant from them. And we want our dogs to, when we say to do something, do it snappy. Right, so in that teaching phase, we want it to be as reinforcing as possible, only providing nice consequences to the lessons at hand. Yeah. So again, they don't know the thing, so it would be unfair to smash them for not doing the thing. It's our job to figure out how can I motivate my dog into the plan and towards the benchmark that I've set before them. Okay. Now, Teaching itself, like I said, it's more gross motor function. There's, there's not a huge amount of fine motor skills, right? So that's keeping in mind something like sit, then I just might want them to do a sit in a specific type of way. I can do that in a number of ways. I can use pressure through uh, luring. I can use pressure through tactile, like using my hands. I can use leash pressure. There's all sorts of different ways of doing them. I can free shape where I just get my dog to try and figure it out. And all of these ways, that those particular tools is not the, the point of today's podcast. 
Today's podcast is about what's the process of going from start to finish, okay? So in that teaching phase, it's purely reinforcement, and I can leave the teaching phase when my dog is performing whatever it is that I want them to perform 80% of the time. So four out of five trials, then I'm ready to go. Then I'll go on to the next phase. I don't need my dog, especially at this early stage, to be doing things 100% of the time. I don't need them to be doing things with a style. I don't need them to be doing things with a whole heap of flair. All I want them to do is A, do get to the outcome that I want and enjoy the process of getting to that outcome. So I, I want the dog to be able to think of like think of a kid coming down the stairs and coming out and seeing what's underneath the Christmas tree that brain explosion of look at all of these presents look at all this stuff that I've got that's what we want from our dog coming out of the teaching phase it's important that our dog is seriously motivated into finding the solution because if I have uh, a massive amount of value built up intrinsically and innately in my dog in the teaching phase, then that means that the amount of enthusiasm that they're investing, as I start to make things harder and harder, that enthusiasm overwhelms the grind of what's going to happen much later. Yeah, because much later, things are going to become far more difficult for our dogs. But if I don't have the enthusiasm, then the distress of my dog increases and overwhelms the eustress, right? If we remember back to previous episodes, the distress is the performance eroding stress. That's when everything I touch turns to mud. And the eustress is when I'm at the, the peak of my abilities. That's when everything I touch turns to gold. And that's the, that's the power that we want our dogs to feel because it doesn't matter whether I have a super defensive shutdown uh, dog. It doesn't matter whether I have a super aggressive dog. If my dog feels like they are in, if they feel they perceive that they are able to exact some sort of control on the the lesson on their life, a lot of the bad stuff falls off the back of the truck, you know, because they seem to have some agency. It doesn't matter that we have set that agency up, that it is artificial, that it is manufactured. Our dog feels empowered. So because they feel empowered, that builds a bunch of other things that relieve them of distress. So that means, again, that I can, I can surf that wave right the way through to the trialing phase. But if I don't have that, then I'm always trying to push a massive boulder up the hill. And then I start to get frustrated. I start to stop doing what it is that I'm doing. And then I go, no, I've really got to visit this again. And I get stuck into this rut where I'm pushing a boulder up the hill. I'll let it roll me over. I'll go down to the bottom of the hill and I'll start pushing it back up again. And I perform this catch-22 situation. It's a never-ending loop, but it's always in the teaching phase. So whatever it is that I'm trying to do can never compete with the actual triggers that are out there in the, in the real world. So again, it's purely reinforcement and I'm teaching my dog roughly what it is that I want them to do. I want to build a huge amount of enthusiasm in getting to the end result and I can leave the teaching phase when my dog is able to do the thing that I want them to do, four out of five trials.
As soon as we've achieved that 80% success rate, our dog is doing what it is that we want them to do with some reliability. Now I can enter the terming phase. And the terming phase is almost the same as the teaching phase. But by this stage, we're introducing some sort of a signal, some sort of a pressured signal. And our dog is then predicting this pressure means do that thing. So they're starting to beat the pressure to its, its intended input. Once we're at that stage, then I start to add the, the command label before the pressure arrives. So for example, if I want to teach a sit, then I will say sit, then I will present the food law, then I will use tactile pressure, whatever it is that I, whatever paradigm I'm using to teach, I'm going to introduce the pressure after I have given the command itself. Okay, so it's sit, present the food, lift the dog's nose up, dog sits, job done. After a bunch of repetitions, I will notice that I say sit and before I've had time to provide the pressure, my dog is automatically predicting and connecting the dots. You say sit, this is the type of pressure you're going to bring on. I'll beat you to it so you can get me that marker and that the consequence much faster. So this is where I'm starting to ask for more accuracy. What is accuracy? Accuracy is I say a command my dog performs or executes upon that command. And what I want by the end of the terming phase is 100% accuracy. So I say sit once, my dog sits once. Okay, we're not looking for duration. We're not looking for uh, anything complex. All I want out of my dog when I say sit, my dog parks their butt into the ground and they do it with speed, they do it with enthusiasm, they're doing it with effort, and they're executing the skill that I want, right? So I've got my three E's. I've got enthusiasm, I've got effort, and I've got execution. That's shown to me by the enthusiasm. My dog is getting the job done as quickly as they can so that I can get them the reinforcer as quickly as they can. They're doing it with effort. That's, that's the speed that is being shown. And they're executing the skill. That accuracy is going to be 100% by the time we finish that terming phase. We still stay on a fixed ratio of one, right? So our, every single repetition, we're going to be marking and paying that particular behavior. Now, in the teaching and the terming phase, I allow two seconds for completion of that behavior because I'm not looking for a huge amount of speed. I'm not looking for my dog to be on turbo. What I'm looking for is clarity between my dog's ears so that I provide an input and they go, that input means provide this output. Yeah, so there's a, there's a bit of a, a to and fro to that. So what that allows me to do is provide uh, the word sit, my dog knows when you say sit, this is the concept of sit that I understand. They perform it and I go, dude, that's what I want. Awesome. Yes, and come and get your food. So at this stage, we still have two seconds to complete things. We have a fixed rate of one. So every single repetition is going to get paid because every single repetition is going to be successful. And once our dog is able to do the skill that we want them to do, five out of five trials, that's when we're ready to graduate out of the terming phase.
At the completion of the terming phase, we have a dog who is able to, for a very short while, complete an exercise with some effort, some enthusiasm, and some execution. We've got an accuracy of 100%, and we have an enthusiastic dog looking to do the thing it is that we want them to do. But that doesn't really match up to what we need in real life. If I'm at a set of traffic lights, and I need my dog to sit, I don't want them to just slam their dog and slam their butt into the ground and pop back up again, jump in front of me into the traffic and do whatever it is they want to do. I need to be able to get to real life applications first, but I've built a solid base upon which I can then spring into the next phase. And that's the training phase itself. So at this stage, there's a bunch of different things that are changing. We've got a rough outline of the behavior, right? So think of it as if, if you're drawing a picture or if you're painting or whatever, you're gonna be drawing your outlines first and then you're gonna be coloring, coloring, coloring in later. So what we're starting to introduce in the training phase is we're going to be introducing some frustration. Now this is where we need to be careful because again, we're building upon the enthusiasm established in the, in the teaching phase. So the frustration that we want to have in one direction is we want to frustrate our dog enough so that they are motivated further into the behavior. They are driving themselves deeper into the behavior itself. On the flip side, there's the rejection aspect right, and of frustration. Oh, this, this sucks. I'm not going to try this anymore. I can start to use that for when my dog drifts away or they go down a rabbit hole that I don't want them to be in. I can use that rejection frustration in that particular aspect and they leave the other stuff alone and are then coming back to the training plan as often as possible. So I am starting to introduce some frustration that may be withholding the food for a little while, keeping them going over. That's where um, some of our duration markers come into play. Uh, it may be that there are times when we graduate away from our reinforcement schedule and that can be difficult for dogs. So they start to work a little bit harder because, hey, you didn't notice it before. Well, I'll just slam my butt into the ground faster so that you see and you can't help but notice and pay for that. So what we're starting to introduce is we're discernibly looking for leaps in effort, enthusiasm, and execution. If we have a, a decent enough jump between levels of the of intensity of, of the three E's, then I'm gonna jackpot that and that ends the session. Right? So if, if I have a dog who's just at two seconds is slowly putting their butt down to the ground, like oh, there's a problem there. But if they, so I'm, I need to put more value into what it is they're doing. So then I might just present them just a one rep session I say sit, they slowly put their butt down onto the ground, their butt is hovering above the ground because they're nervous, they're, they're in a defensive state or whatever. I might just turn around and go, do you know what? Yep, come and get your entire meal out of the bait bucket. And the, if I do that, within a few repetitions, the value of performing what was previously an apprehensive behavior starts to shift away and our dog starts to become far more enthusiastic about that. The execution is still occurring, it's still 100%, but our enthusiasm 
is starting to increase. And those leaps, like I said, I want to jackpot those. And if I'm jackpotting something, that ends the session. So what I'm able to do through the effort, the enthusiasm, and the execution and jackpotting those is I'm, I'm building more and more access to dopamine. Whereas I'm also able to then provide balance to the cortisol of, hey, I'm not too sure if I'm doing this right, or this is really difficult right now, or we're doing this in a different place. Whatever it is, cortisol is similar to dopamine, but cortisol tends to pull our dog away from what it is that we're trying to do. So dopamine is the, hey, I want to unwrap this present and get at the end result, whereas cortisol is, no, I don't think I want this present. I've got to get away from this. This is overwhelming. Dopamine is about feeling good internally. Think about those butterflies when things are going awesome in your stomach. And cortisol is that feeling of I've got to get up and get away. It's that almost nauseous feeling, okay? So we want to not have the cortisol. We want to teach our dogs that dopamine is where it's at. Cortisol cortisol is a pathway to dopamine. If we think about it like that, it's, it's not quite the case, but if we think that, that that horrible feeling you've got, I'm paying that so much that cortisol innately turns off, dopamine switches on, and then I'm eliminating that really slow and sluggish execution. I'm able to take that lack of effort and I'm able to put some turbo onto it. So some of the other things that we're looking at doing during the training phase is our timing shifts away from you have two seconds to complete the exercise to do it now. So at the end of the terming phase, we had the do it. And at the end of the training phase, we have the do it now. Now, along with that, so along with the, the motivational frustration, the jackpotting of the effort, enthusiasm in the execution, along with the timing shift of two seconds to now, what I start to do is I'm changing up how I'm paying my dog. So we've talked about this in an episode before, but it's in the training phase itself where I go from a fixed fixed rate of one, so every single repetition gets paid. Now I go to, for a short time, a fixed rate of two. So it's every second repetition that I'm paying, even though my accuracy remains at 100%. Every time I say sit, my dog sits, but I'm only ever paying 50% for a short while. That teaches my dog that, oof, that was really difficult. There's a slight cortisol uh, dump, and my dog goes, well, sit sucks. Why am I doing this? You're not paying me. And then the next time around, my dog slams their butt into the ground a little bit harder. I pay them, and they go, oh, I've got some dopamine back. And then as they start to predict that they don't get paid every time, but it's predictable when they do get paid, then the cortisol goes away, the dopamine stays, and now my dog is able to do the behavior predictably, reliably, and do it accurately. And as soon as we've got that, that our dog is able to continue to do the skill without a reinforcer or a nice consequence being present, Then I start to make things unpredictable. Then I'll go to a variable schedule where it's more or less random. But I'll start off with, it's random, but you're going to get paid for 50% of the repetitions we're going to do, but you can't predict which of those are going to be paid and which aren't. But I always keep in mind, if I have a decent leap between effort, enthusiasm, and execution, that always gets jackpotted. So I could end up with some really short sessions. Okay? 
What I'm also starting to do during the training phase is I'm introducing negative punishments. What is negative punishment? Negative means I am taking something away. Punishment means that I am reducing the intensity and or frequency of a behavior. So if my dog does something, uh, let's just say for example, they do the sit, but they do it way too late, they do it way too sluggish, or instead of sitting, they, I don't know, they down. I can go, the session's done. You can go back into your crate, you can go back into isolation, we're not gonna have anything to do with each other for a little while. We'll, you lose access to your meal, so you're gonna have a calorie deficit by the time we hit the next training session. That negative punishment, that taking away access to problem solving, taking away access to quality time with you, taking away access to enrichment, taking away access to things that have some severe value in our dog's life, that's pretty intense. So our dogs are then going, oh, this really is not worth my while. This is frustrating me. Then they start to go, well, how do I not get frustrated in this particular way? And because of that then, our dogs start to figure out all of the things that produce that nasty consequence. And they cease doing those things that produce the nasty consequence. And through that, I can I can establish that my accuracy remains at 100%, that I'm, I'm pushing my dog for big leaps in effort, enthusiasm, and execution, and that their timing is increasing from two seconds to doing it now. Thanks for listening. This concludes part one of episode 17. So we'll just call it 17A. And in the next episode, we're going to go further into details about those uh, first three questions, as well as some of the other phases of training. So I'd like to thank you for listening so far. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Uh, come on over to the Facebook group. You can pose your own questions. You can share other people's successes. You can share yours, and you can share your trials as well. If you want to get in contact with me personally, you can contact me at barefootpaws at mail.com. You can also reach out to me through the website at barefootpaws.com.au. Thanks for listening, guys. I'm going to cue the music, and I'm out of here.